Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. A podcast created for a first responder by a first responder. If you are not a first responder, you still are welcome. This podcast is aimed directly at trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is complex and often misunderstood. Our brave men and women who serve our communities often end up with behavioral and psychological issues as a result of experienced trauma from their careers. My goal is to share what I know, my personal experience with PTSD as a retired police officer, and continue to advocate for mental health while providing support to those still in their careers. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical help, and I strongly suggest if you are in fact suffering, you seek out professional medical advice. Please join me on this episode as I continue to expose the reality of PTSD challenges. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to 1033. This is the second part of an episode that I've already done with Avery Bro. Avery Bro and I have somehow managed to do an incredibly long episode, but it's really good. And I wanted to come back and make sure that we had a chance to go over a few more questions because you still have more questions, Avery. So before we do that, how are you today? Where are you in this journey? What does today look like for you? Oh, I'm actually doing really good and I'm really excited to continue part two and I have a lot of questions for you today, so I hope you're ready. I am born ready. Now that I have my coffee in front of me, I am good to go. So the last time we spoke, we left off at the very end of the conversation, and I was absolutely applauding you for this because it's really important, is I don't think there's one kind of person that makes up what should be a good police officer. I don't believe that exists. And I think that when you bring in an, an abundance amount of people with different perspectives, but all hold kind of the similar qualities, they can make this well-rounded team because that's what you need when you police people. You need a team to police them because not everybody is going to want to connect with, you know, the the big male, strong, physical type of person. They're going to want a, a female who, you know, maybe is a little bit more emotionally based or has a better connection with her own emotions or whatever the case is. And you were talking too a lot about how you with your experience uh, in social work and helping others also have a very unique perspective on how to come in and challenge that role of policing and what you can add to it. And that is exactly what we need. Very, very fundamental in what makes up policing. There is no one person that fits that mold. Right. Yeah, for sure. But one of my first questions, I guess, for part two, kind of going sequentially here is, you know, we talked about how, for example, in my case, if I go into policing, that social work um, might really be a good parallel with policing. But there's definitely a lot of people who are in the, a lot of other backgrounds like teaching or, or I don't even know, actually, the other ones. But overall, like, what would you say the fundamental qualities of a good police officer are? 
There was an acronym the RCMP used for years. I think they just recently changed it, but it was HIPCAR, and it had to do with honesty, integrity, professionalism, compassion, accountability, and respect. And I think if you can somehow hold all of those in your core your and then make up your moral compass, I think for the most part, regardless of what it is that you're doing with your life, you're going to be okay from that position. There are so many people out there that have uh, or start out in life in a certain way. They they become a, a laborer or a construction worker or they build homes or they get into IT or graphic design or whatever the case is. And then all of a sudden they're, they're down the road, they're in their 30s and they're still amazing people and they still possess those great qualities. And they say, hey, I'm having a change of heart. I've always wanted to explore becoming a police officer. Let's do it. And they go out and they make phenomenal police officers. Right. I know um, before we started recording, we were kind of talking about um, like my own experience seeing police officers being very, very patient with people. So would you say that perhaps patience is something that could be missing from that acronym? That's really important. Patience. I mean, patience could potentially fall under professionalism to a degree, right? Uh, some of those were, and again, compassion, you could have, kind of have compassion under one of the words, you know what I mean, loosely. Um, but I would agree with you that it is a very fundamental part. Should it be included in that acronym? Absolutely, because you have to be an extremely patient person. You and I were just chatting too about the level of patience that you saw and no pun intended, patience, not patience with a T, uh, that you saw as you were in a hospital the other night and you saw the police officers coming in with people that were going through different things in life and how many of those police officers sat there for hours with people and made sure that they were just there with them, guiding them, making sure they weren't causing any issues. And that's what policing is a lot of times. I don't want to use this saying that you become a very good babysitter of people but you do actually have to literally at times as a police officer stand over and watch people and make sure that they're they're moving along in life in that moment in a healthy direction because sometimes a lot of people lose their way right and and kind of on that as well like when I was witnessing this in the hospital uh too it seemed like the people that were there had some pretty significant mental health and, and I know that's a really huge conversation in policing right now. The fact that um, mental health is, is really at the forefront. It's definitely talked about more. We're here now talking about mental health. So um, yeah, like how, how often would you say in your policing career, um, your calls were mental health based? Absolutely great question. I would say, I would say a vast majority of them were mental health related because I think for me, now that I've gone through my own uh, mental health, I guess, crisis when I went through PTSD and then I've had to learn how to heal from that. I think now when I look back at people and how they navigate life as the person who's incredibly mentally stable and holds compassion and care for others nine times out of 10 won't be causing any issues in society. They just won't. They're going to be living their life. They're not going to be dealing drugs. They're not going to be causing any issues. They're not going to be assaulting people. They're not going to be going out and drinking and causing sexual assaults or anything like that. But it's the people that constantly 
create these little issues, whether they're criminal code offenses or it falls strictly under mental health and they're just not doing well, I would say a large portion of our calls fall under mental health in some regards. It's just how extreme is that mental health? I've shown up to calls where people are visibly mentally unwell and they have been for years and they've been locked away in social isolation and they need significant help and it's very apparent right? And there, there's an odor too that comes along with a mental health call too. People stop taking care of themselves. So they start to emit like a certain odor and stuff where, and then you take that to the other end of the, the, where the pendulum may swing down to someone who's just starting that journey into not doing well mentally. And they might be getting into, you know, taking things from other people or theft or whatever the case is. And, you know, they lack that general compassion. So I don't have an exact number for you, but I would explain it that way that I think a lot of our calls are actually really, when you boil it down, comes down to mental health. Yeah. I, I actually never thought about it that way, that oftentimes the people that police officers are assisting and and dealing with are obviously struggling in in some way in in society. And there is probably going to be that mental health underlay to everything really in policing. So on that note, did you receive kind of any mental health training for the RCMP? Yeah, I think back in 2007, when I went through depot, we may have received a little bit, kind of the the very Cole's note version of, you know, this is what somebody in distress might look like. Uh, and we were going through a time to where, you know, we were using some probably not really great terms either. Like there was an emotionally, a a phase of us using emotionally disturbed person, an EDP person uh, from mental health call. And I think we actually removed that from our vocabulary, which is amazing because it needs to be removed because it just, it casts too much, too much of a potential for, Uh, a judgment or, or anything that could negatively impact how someone may perceive how to approach that call. Now, the training I got in depot, I can say, I don't really remember because this was years ago. So I can't say they did enough or didn't do enough. Do I think they should have done more then? Absolutely. Were we now starting to move more into a phase of acknowledging mental health as an overall issue in society and approaching it differently? I think policing is still trying to catch up to that right now. I still think they have a lot of room to move in in order to grow, in order to meet the right level of how they approach it. But I do think they are moving in the right direction. Right. Yeah. Like mental health is... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. And sorry, just to jump into like, even I'm just trying to reflect to even on the training that I had over the years, you know, I think, I think you can always do more, right? Like I may have received mental health courses once every couple of years. Right. Right. And and then you have to ask yourself, is that enough? for a job where, you know, your bread and butter is dealing with people that aren't doing well? So the way I like to think about anything in life is that everything is is a learning experience and we can always do better. There's always things that we could do differently. 
And so I kind of have another question alongside of this, and it might be a big one, and you might need more time to think about it. But what would you envision then, knowing what you know now about mental health, your own experiences, just everything you've seen in the job, what would policing, the best version of policing look like for you? It's mm. a great question. That's a, a big great one. question. That is a very <laughs> big one. I would start off with if we're going to become police officers in our lifetimes and do this as a career and have a hope of making it to 20, 30 years, you're going to need an immense amount of support along the way. And I think that becoming a cop is something that you shouldn't do on your own and expect to weather the storm alone. That's what I did. I would also say too that I think the RCMP has to get better at supporting its people as well. The ones that go through unfortunate events such as this. Now, I think when I was going through some of the challenges that I was going through, I don't think I received a lot of support that I should have in order to to heal. And that's actually ultimately why I left the Mounties because I, I knew in that moment that I was never going to get the support from them that I truly needed in order to heal from everything that I had been through as a police officer. So as a man, I eventually said, okay, if they're not going to support me, how am I going to do this? I need to leave and I need to find that support somewhere else. Now, they're very complex situation for what I went through, right? There was the PTSD, there was the trauma, there was the workplace uh, violence, the workplace bullying that happened to me at the hands of a sergeant who was also unwell. And I've come to peace with everything that's happened to me in my career. But in the moments where I didn't have peace, I definitely didn't feel supported in, you know, the, the way that harassment and bullying is dealt with in the Mounties. And I think that's really important too, is that the RCMP needs to get better at also owning their own issues and mistakes and helping their people heal from that space. Because when you deny someone that right, as in you refuse the narrative as to what has happened to someone, you kind of block that moment of healing, right? You kind of tell them what we, what you experienced either doesn't matter, it's insignificant, or we just don't agree with you. So there's a lot of things that need to change there internally, especially when it comes to supporting their people. Um, and also outside of that too, now as like someone who's retired, I think the community needs to do a better job too of supporting first responders. And this doesn't just go for police officers. This goes for firefighters, nurses, uh, co um, corrections, people in jails, our, our police. I mean, all of these amazing men and women who put their lives on the line to serve the community in a heightened role of potentially experiencing significant trauma and we always nickel and dime them we always we don't pay them enough we we overwork them we make them work for overtime in order to make extra money to you know have money to do the things that they need to do in life and i think those people really need to be supported in a much different fashion where they can have more of a better pay package so they can have to work less so that there's longevity built into the career. Now, is that going to happen? Most likely not. 
It's very wishful thinking on my end. That would be the ideal kind of way I would hope that, you know, first responder careers can go because we all need these things. We need the decompression time. And how do we do it? Well, we definitely can't get to a point in our life where we feel like we have to keep working over and over and over again to make the money that we need to live in an expensive city, like say Vancouver or Toronto or whatever the case is, right? And we all want to grow too. We all want to have investments and better ourselves. So how do we do that? We sacrifice ourselves in the hopes of being able to do that. So I'm probably getting quite global when I think about answering this question, but I would say the the overall way we should look at helping our first responders has to come down to there needs to be the proper supports internally, and there also needs to be the proper supports externally as well. Right. Yeah, I'm hearing a, a very much underlying theme of uh, like supporting our first responders and ensuring that they're fully taken care of so that they can take care of other people. Um, I, I actually was thinking in a different kind of, of sense, and it's kind of like a buzzword phrase. It might be very triggering for me to say this, especially within the last couple of years, just the, the social climate. Um, but there's this term of uh, like defund the police. And at first I thought, like, what the heck? <laughs> what is going on? What do you mean defund the police? But when I really took the time to learn a little bit more about it, um, it's from my understanding, again, I could be wrong, but it's a lot about having um, like more supports towards like mental health or even um, going towards certain calls, having uh, like interdisciplinary teams. Like, would you say when you were an officer, it might've been like beneficial to have perhaps a police officer who's specifically trained in like mental health crises or something like that. Yeah, I do actually really support uh, a large portion of what you just say. And it's not that I disagree with some of the other aspects. I think it just needs some conversation to iron out. Okay. How do we look at this moment or this movement of, you know, defund the police and what does that look like? When this first started to come out, defund the police, it came off of the heels of, uh, I believe, the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Where uh, a group of people now have been, well, they're tired for the right reasons of a very dark history. They've gone through a lot. They've gone through slavery. They've gone through injustice. They've gone through uh, being beaten down and being left out. And they're a disproportionate group to experience being put in jail. Same goes with natives, right? So you have a very vulnerable group of people. And I don't know if defund the police came from that, but I think it came out around that time, right? Because there was a lot of police brutality down in the States. And there was this growing uh, friction between society and police because of all the images that were happening on media. And it was a great time for that to come out because it definitely led to connecting with people emotionally in the sense that people were tired of, of seeing police brutality. I agree. Police brutality is horrible. It shouldn't happen. And, and especially someone shouldn't lose their, uh, lose their life over it. And that's exactly what happened down in the States. So when we come out and say, okay, what's the solution here? And a lot of people were very angry at the time. They said, well, let's take stuff away from the police. We want less. We want to defund them. They want to take things away. Well, is that really the answer when 
we're actually not meeting the right amount of supports for them. And there's all of these issues already that are existing and are in place. I actually disagree with that. I think any time you take something away from someone, you tend to leave them in a worse situation. So if you really want to defund the police, you're now really setting them up for failure. And are you lowering the standards of, you know, potential people that you're going to be hiring now as police officers to go in to do a very crucial role in society? I don't like the idea, personally speaking. If you were going to defund the police and you were going to try and approach this in a healthy way where you can look at defunding the police, but doing it in a way where it would actually make sense, where I would support it, I would say, sure, defund the police, but also roll back how much responsibility they have in their day-to-day job. Do they need to be going to the house where, you know, some kid isn't doing his homework? Do they need to go and have a conversation with that child about the importance of doing their homework? I've heard of police officers getting called to go and do that. We're hired, we're trained for stressful dynamic situations, moments of crisis. But yet somehow policing has become this, we also need to go out and help parents parent their children. And I don't know if I agree with that either. So if you're wanting to defund the police, Maybe you need to peel back our responsibilities as well at the same time. So, and that's kind of where my mind goes with that one. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but if you're going to give us less, we need to also be able to do less because we still have to maintain our own health too in that role uh, of being a police officer. It is like, I hear you and um, I don't agree or disagree either way necessarily with the term, but I think it's a really good opening to have these types of conversations because they're hard and you were a police officer so you have experienced a completely other side than I've even gotten to yet but I think it's really good to be engaging with these conversations and what I was thinking about when you were speaking is during my master's program there is this theory and it's called overdeterminism, and I'm not sure if you've heard about it um My professor would be happy if she heard me talking about this right now. (laughs) But uh, it's basically a theory that says that everything is a cause and effect of itself. So if you change one thing, you're actually changing a bunch of other things. And so it kind of reminded me of what you said when you're like, if we remove funding for policing, like, what are we going to do instead? So... You can't just take away the funding from policing and just expect it to all get better. Um, but this this theory specifically says, you know, we can only obviously do our best because some people get stuck saying, well, you know, if everything's just messed up, then why would I even try? And I think we just have to do our best to find that entry point of where we think could make the best difference. And And for me, I'm thinking, you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily mean taking away funding from the police per se, but ensuring that there's people who are on the team who are trained with mental health. Maybe there's a lot of other huge things that will not be solved overnight, such as making housing affordable or a lot of other things. You can't necessarily fix it overnight, but in my opinion, people who were in your position might have been in a better place to help had you had the support like you were originally talking about. 
to be able to maybe make those positive changes. Yeah, no, and I, I fully, fully support that train of thought. Absolutely. I think something really, really cool that came out not long ago was Colorado, actually. I think they did a pilot project where they came out and they said, okay, we're going to change the way we do business with police officers. We're going to build in a mental health crisis team, and we're actually going to send them out first to do an assessment on people to see if the police are needed. Now, obviously, they're not going to send a mental health crisis team to an active school shooter, right? They're going to send the police to that because life and death is a matter of, you know, moments away. So we're going to send our highly trained uh, individuals to go and deal with that. So what they actually were finding was that they needed police involvement much less and that the impact that the mental health team was now having with people that were getting called that would normally be met with a police officer, we're now getting met by a group of supportive people who have been through life themselves. And they were actually able to see a significant positive impact from that. And that is something that I think you and I are talking very much about right now is police officers are trained, and I was just mentioning this before, for moments of crisis. That includes mental health crisis, that includes moments where people are going to get severely hurt, you know, traffic accidents, whatever the case is, they're there for those significant moments. The unfortunate part of policing, which I believe has happened over the years, is we've started to take on more, we've started to wear more hats and go to more calls because that's kind of what's expected of us, right? And there's a bunch of pressures and things going on as to why we're taking on more responsibility. But if you're going to take that money away from us, but give us more responsibility, that doesn't work. And it's showing right now. So you're right. My belief is that we actually need to increase funding and also decrease our expectations of what police officers or first responders are supposed to be doing. They need to come up with their own solutions about what is it that we're trained to do and stick with that. Firefighters are going through this right now too, where firefighters predominantly in the history used to go to just building fires. Well, building fires are down significantly because building code and, you know, all of these different products now that are used. So what are firefighters doing? They're going to first aid calls and traffic accidents and they're out guiding traffic. It's a different world. So I think our approach to all of these different uh, first responder roles that we need in society also needs to modernize in a sense, if that makes sense. And I do actually fully support the idea of, of bringing in mental health professionals to go out along with or even before police officers to, to do this assessment and connect with people and say, what's really going on here? How do we help? How do we help better solve this problem? Because police officers who go out to deal with someone who's committing a criminal act, we, we arrest them, we send them off to court, and they just keep doing what they're doing. There's no change. And that is a broken loop in trying to get people to get better. And I think we need, our approach needs to shift a bit. Right. And what I just thought about when you said that is that's the symptom of a greater problem is the people who are continuing to be engaged in the criminal justice system and coming from a very trauma-informed perspective, you say, what happened to that person? You know, very different way of thinking about it. And I'm kind of altering your thought a little bit in the sense of it might even be really cool eventually if you could have like a police officer and the mental health professional, just a team going out to the call together. 
because I think as well from a place of privilege, I haven't had any negative experiences with a police officer in my entire life. I very much feel safe and protected by police officers. So there is definitely a history of of a lot of violence and just historical things that you mentioned as well. And perhaps having someone who is dressed like you're saying in plain clothes, that might be a little less triggering for people too. So that's just kind of my perspective, but I think we're definitely on the same page about that, which is really cool to see. So um, the next question I kind of want to go into was if there is any specific self-care methods, one that you use today that you find helpful, and two, what you would have suggested for someone who's in the career of policing. Let's tackle the first question here first, self-care. Hmm. That's another great question. Another big question. The things, the things that I do now for myself, and I think one of the most important things that you're going to have to learn how to do in policing is to tune into the body, to listen to the body and the mind and ask yourself, what do I need in this moment? Because as you go through trauma after trauma after trauma, you start to shut down a little bit and you start to kind of disconnect yourself a little bit in, in hopes of trying to deal with some of the pain and suffering that you're seeing and now feeling. And when you do that, when you create that slight disconnect, you almost stop feeling and understanding where you're at with your own needs and where do you need to go in order to have that balance in your life. And I had completely done that. I'm guilty of that. I will fall on that sword, you know, all day long. I did that in my policing career where I went through so much trauma and I started to numb myself out and shut down my emotions in order to try and use it as a coping mechanism. And that's something that goes back to even childhood trauma as well. And I could only do that for so long, right? So I got to a point now where I'm having a mental health crisis and, you know, PTSD is very much a part of my world now and I'm just going through the struggle. So now that I'm on the other end of that with health and, you know, an overall sense of like, I'm doing great these days. And I have been now for a few years, but I had to make some significant changes in my life. And I had to bring in certain things like understanding how to ground the body on a walk, how to use your senses to ground yourself into the present moment and not fear the past or fear the future or to let the body override you. And because we get very good of as police officers anticipating threat and danger, the body looks for that too when you're not on shift. So when you're going for a walk, you might be actually, the body might be in a heightened state already where you're thinking that there's a bear in the woods when there's no bear. So you've got to get that body to calm down to a point where it doesn't feel like it's under threat anymore. And I think that's why grounding these days is so particularly fascinating for me because there are so many people that suffer from anxiety or depression or post-traumatic stress and they walk about life in this disconnected state, this survival state, hypervigilant and unaware as to where they really are and you have to break that cycle eventually, right? You'll go on and have much healthier relationships with people and yourself when you do that. So grounding has been one that has worked fantastic for me. I learned about that in rehab and I wish I would have learned about that years ago. Uh, meditation is another one that can really help the body to uh, calm down. 
as well and kind of open up, you know, allowing the mind to heal itself because with PTSD, what tends to happen too within the brain is the amygdala will actually start to grow as you experience trauma. And it'll do that for a specific reason because you're in an environment that's particularly dangerous. So the brain is changing now to adapt to its environment. What happens when you go home to make your dinner with your wife that night? Your amygdala is still the same size. So as you're chopping something, you think that she's going to grab something and attack you. That's not even a legitimate thought whatsoever. But your body's in that state where it's trying to figure out where it stands within its environment. So meditation for me has been huge, I think, in probably decreasing some of those unhealthy thinking patterns that I did have as a police officer. And it's allowed me to relax a lot more and allow the body to calm down. Uh, There's other things you can do too that really help. Um, Reading, going for a walk, taking the dog out, not socially isolating, making sure you're staying connected with your friends and actually having good conversation about where are you with your mental health and being open and vulnerable and authentic with your journey, right? That's also how you have to heal from all this stuff to stay well. Um, Yeah, that would be kind of how I would answer that question for now. And that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, that, that would be my approach for right now is kind of bring in those things. There's, there's a whole bunch of other ones too, that I, you know, I'm thinking of in the moment, but it, it's such a big answer. Like there's nutrition and physical exercise and making sure you're, you're losing weight or you're getting some of the, the heaviness off of you too, right? Cause when the body's doing well, the mind does well. So there's so many different things you can be doing. I think the big thing too, like the, the final answer I'll give for this question is you really need to be able to evaluate where you are in your life and what's going on within you. And we're very good at understanding what the problem may look like. Sometimes we're not great at addressing the problem or understanding how to find a solution to address that problem. But if you can identify at least the problem that you're facing and share it with somebody, if you can't come up with a solution, someone around you should be able to help you out. Right. Yeah. Those are definitely all, all great methods of self-care. I know um, when I was a youth worker in Vancouver for a few years, Uh, a piece of advice I got was when I come home, you go have a shower right away. You wash off your day, get your clothes, put them in the laundry. It's just showing your brain the separation from I was there and now I'm here. So obviously that's a very small, small thing that you can do. But um, yeah, all of those sound great. Yeah. The only thing I would say too, with that method, just be careful. You're not washing away the, the painful emotion that came from that day and you're not suppressing it. Right. You still, you're allowed to have a shower when you come home from work and wash away some of the the harder things that you've been through, but still give yourself that time to deal with some of the, the tough emotions that also come from that space too, of having to help somebody that's in crisis, uh, and navigate that as well. So I have a, a question on top of that. So Being a police officer, I imagine you have multiple traumatic calls all through the day and none of them are easy. So if, for example, someone's seeing a therapist regularly to be, you know, preventative maintenance, ongoing maintenance, you can't call a therapist every single day after your shift. So how, how would you say you kind of hold those in until you get to, to talk to someone about those hard calls? 
I did an interview, I think you heard this one, with Sergeant Mike Wilford, and he talked about how for years he hadn't been emptying his cup, and his cup was really big, and he had put a lot of trauma into it, and eventually it overflowed from just filling up the cup, right? You don't have space anymore. And the body starts to react too to that as well. It says, okay, no more. We can't keep doing this. The cup's full. I'm letting you know. So he he has an approach now where he he allows himself to see the hard things that you do see as a police officer, let those hard things go into the cup, but also make a note of, okay, this was particularly disturbing for me, whatever the case was, I'm going to save this for later for when I sit down with a psychologist so that we can pull this back out and we can deal with the emotions that are there. And why does this impact me the way it does? Right. So I heard as well, and correct me if I'm wrong, that sometimes, uh, police stations have an on on like on call person working there who is a social worker. Did you have that at any of your locations? No, I didn't. And the RCMP is notorious for this because we're all over Canada and sometimes we're very far north. So sometimes we don't really have the supports that are there. Um, I think too, to piggyback off of the first part of my answer was that your mental health as a police officer is something that you hold and only you hold. So to have an expectation that someone is going to fix you when you break, you can't hold that expectation. You need to hold that you're going to have to own your own mental health in the career and champion it to some degree. And also make sure that you educate yourself into what it is that you need to in order to stay well. So after finally years of therapy for me, like I have like a really good, you know, I use the, uh, the, imagery of the tool belt, I have the proper tools now. Before I didn't have as many tools, so I kind of struggled with how do I deal with this in a pinch, right? When I didn't have support or access to someone that could help me. So I kind of just stuff it down and be like, oh, I'll just deal with it later. And my cup would fill up much like Sergeant Mike Wilford's, right? And until you go through years of therapy, do you finally truly understand you, yourself, and how it is how you need to approach yourself and what your needs are in order to stay well. Right. So there's, there's also that dynamic as well. We can't expect someone to always be there waiting for us for when we have a hard moment, but we also have to learn how to deal with that on our own too. But I still support obviously seeing a psychologist too, from time to time in the profession it's needed, keeps us talking. For sure. And, and that's a good point too, because you don't want to be in a position where you're putting all your eggs in one basket and fully relying and kind of using therapy as a crutch. Like you, you do also have to put in your own work as well, like you're saying. And, and I completely agree with that. Um, I know you mentioned something about, uh, and I don't know if this actually was a thought that crossed you legitimately, or if it was just kind of a point, but you said um, when you're home, Sometimes when you're around your spouse, you might be in, you know, that, that trauma response mode and that can kind of transfer onto your spouse. Is this person going to hurt me? You know? So I kind of wanted to go in that direction if you're okay with it, um, the relationship side of it. And one, I was curious it within your career, when, when exactly did you get married in that timeline of policing? 
Yeah. So I, I started dating my wife, now wife, uh, in 2009 and I was diagnosed in 2014 with PTSD, but I knew something was definitely happening well before that. Uh, I became a cop in about 2007. So I kind of knew right around the time about 09, 2010 was when things were starting to change. It wasn't until about 2014 when we really drilled down into, okay, what do I have? And, and I own that too. Like I kind of, there was a protection kind of armor issue going on at that time. I wasn't totally vulnerable at that time either. So I had to learn how to talk about all this, this hard stuff. We later married in 2016. We had our first kid in 2017, our next in 2020, and then our third in 2022, just recently. Uh, we had a, a boy. Um, so yeah, my relationship with my wife, my wife knew me from pretty much the onset of being a police officer into who I am now. But she also has a really unique perspective too, because she's talked to me a lot about this, how she's watched a lot of my friends, because we all got into policing at the same time when we went to Whistler. There was a lot of friends that I had uh, established, a lot of young men that are starting out in their career. And she's like, I watched all of you guys and girls go from like happy-go-lucky and outgoing to these, you know, these amazing individuals who have these amazing stories and a zest for life to people who are just literally like the life has been sucked out of you. She's like, I watched all of you go through it. And I'm like, wow, I, I really didn't, I would have never picked up on that because she saw the change. Uh, and then also there is very much a component too of that unfortunately does come into the household as well, right? There are lost marriages, there is divorce, there is a bunch of issues that happen within a relationship because PTSD, I mean, it, it, you can't just leave it at the door. So there is very much a thing too that happens within spouses called uh, residual PTSD as well. And spouses can be impacted by a first responder in their their PTSD, and some of those symptoms can transfer on to other people. Right, and and your wife sounds like a superhero to me because oftentimes the people we don't think about is the ones supporting the helpers. So absolutely, I just just hearing you like I I can't imagine one going through what you did for sure like that's a lot, but I just wonder and imagine you know what your wife was feeling or what she was thinking she she saw you at your very very best and then saw you go through and are still going through today some of the hardest times of your life so again this is this is very personal but you know did did going through PTSD and it's something you're going to be dealing with probably forever and in a certain degree like and you did mention the the high divorce rates, and I'm not saying you're going down that route. I just want to say or ask, did did your PTSD have an effect on your on your marriage? Oh, absolutely it did. Absolutely. If I would have met that with a no, that would have been denial. Um I think for myself, it definitely did. And I think for many others, I've seen it happen in many others as well. And that's, that's the part that breaks my heart is I can relate to it from a personal standpoint where I've seen the impact of it and the impact or the cost of, uh, of service life on not only myself, but my spouse. And then to my children, I was still a police officer up until last year when I retired. And 
there are just so many things that I look back on. And I think a big part of two for me, why I finally said enough is enough. I need to retire and be free from this was now as a younger father, uh, having children, I started to see kind of who I had become through the eyes of my children. And I, I wasn't okay with that anymore. And that was the moment for me where it was, it was very clear. Like a lot of people say, you know, leaving policing is very tough for, for me, it was tough, but it was also very clear. Like when I finally really kind of put myself in my daughter's shoes and said, okay, what kind of man am I to you as a dad? And like, I was, I've always been a really good dad, but I'm also very critical of myself because that's a little person. And they're going to go on and try to lead this most amazing life. And I want to give my kids everything that they can have in their life. I don't want to be the reason that, you know, they get held back or have any kind of issues. And I think that was something too, that men, men really need to ask themselves that question when they go through some hard things in life is what kind of person are you going to be? And what kind of person was your father or your mother that shaped who you are now as a parent? And I mean, we're kind of blending away from policing now and we're getting into kind of more of the, you know, who are you as a parent, but you have to have those hard conversations with yourself. And if you're not happy with the answer or the way things look, that's okay, but you've got to change. You've got to figure out how to grow from that space and how to heal yourself, others, and not go back there, right? Because unfortunately, and I'll, I'll give an example of this, like say PTSD and irritability, they are best friends. Like when you are burnt out, you become extremely irritable at everything. If somebody asks you a question, a lot of times you meet that, that question with say anger or, and this is very common in men too, but you, you can meet it with irritability, right? So now all of a sudden you're teaching the people around you that we can't ask dad for something because he's moody, grumpy, irritable, or the response he gives shuts someone down. And that's, that's not okay. Right. So and PTSD absolutely comes into the family unit. Absolutely. In many ways. Right. And I, I, I would say it actually does have to do with policing in the sense because, you know, these are the types of questions I think other people who are thinking of going to policing might want to know, like, how will this affect my home life? How is this going to affect my mental health? All of those other things. And, you know, like you were saying earlier about the, the divorce rates, like it's very, very real. And yeah, like it's it's not good. But kind of alongside that as well why would you say there is such high divorce rates or issues within marriages and poli like with police officers again like this probably comes back to uh, a ptsd mental health component right i think i think a lot of times and i mean this is this is a blend of you know my own personal experience and my knowledge of ptsd and watching others go through this so it's not totally my perspective but it's kind of what i've learned over time i think a large portion of people fall in like if you remove policing altogether and you take people that get married before someone in that that relationship is a police officer in that first responder role, uh, they're fairly healthy, right? They look at the relationship with compassion and respect, and they'll give their partner time to explain their emotions or why they're feeling a certain way. And they might be able to show up in that moment as well and say, Hey, you know what? I understand your emotions. Let's connect over that. Right. Cause a big part of relationships, i.e. marriage is about just connecting with your spouse. 
the unfortunate part that happens once you get into first responder work is, you know, you, you go through, say, cause some compassion, burnout, some post-traumatic stress, uh, some mental health challenges, you start to lose that ability to connect with people, right? So it's a, almost like a death by a thousand cuts now where all of a sudden this, this person that you were before being a police officer, you no longer can show up and really give yourself to that relationship because you're just, you're, you're cooked. You're toast from stress, from PTSD, whatever the case is. And I think a large portion of men and women go through that. And then you go further into the road over, over time. And now all of a sudden you can be looking at uh, the relationship is, is actually very negatively impacted by the disconnect and you've grown apart and you start to feel like you'd be better off on your own and not with your partner and there's kids involved and or, or you're not challenging yourself to grow from that space and address some of the behavioral or psychological issues that you may have, right? Like I've heard of tons of cops losing their partner and their, their children and still not fully aware that what they're doing is, is not healthy. And they stay with their career and they might get a promotion and they further go down into, okay, let's throw more of myself at my career. And they totally walk away from their family. So it's a very tricky question and I've seen a lot of people kind of go in so many different avenues, but I think at the, the root of the issue is a, la a large portion of people that go through divorce, you just stop caring. Right. And you just throw in the towel and you give up for whatever it is that you're going through. Maybe you don't have the energy to care. Do you think as well, because I know with policing, you have to, you know, you have to act a certain way to survive. You have to be an authoritative person. You have to be very much in control. And I know you've mentioned this in other podcasts as well of, you know, you can't really always just flick off the switch. It's not that easy. So do you think that that piece of the persona of like the police officer and it's for survival as well. Do you think that that can transfer into marriages? Absolutely. I do agree with that as well. I think, I think even for myself, if I fall on that sword, personally speaking, I think there was many times where I allowed my ego or this persona I had built of who I was as a police officer to transfer into the relationship. Uh, and I'll give an example of this. Um, let's say, let's say control police officers actually tend to develop massive control issues when they're not in control of the environment around them. They feel out of control and that's perceived as a threat. So in the family unit, if your partner decides they want to do something some way and it doesn't make sense to you and you now step in and say, no, you have to do it my way or else, right? There's that, that control issue and that's not healthy either, right? So that too, I mean, and there's so many examples that we can bring and touch on on that too, right? I mean, that, that comes in as well, that persona of being a police officer, right? being in constant state of control so that you feel safe. It's kind of like uh, you mentioned in an earlier podcast, and I don't remember who it was with, but the the idea of the police officer never having their back to a door ever. Oh, and we're, we're horrible with that. I'm, I'm a little bit better now in retirement, but there was many times where I, I would never sit in a restaurant uh, without my back to a wall. So I could watch other people. And I mean, even when I go out with my wife nowadays for a coffee, like I'm better at connecting in that moment with her, but I still struggle because I still watch people and I still watch the hands. Right. 
And it's, right. it's just, it's a part of you now. And it's, it's really, and my wife will catch me. She's like, come back to me. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> right. It sounds like she's really good at grounding you as well and bringing you back to the moment. That's sounds like a really healthy and good relationship for sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, everything that we've talked about relationship wise and, and all of the, you know, some things are actually inevitable. Like you said, PTSD is likely to happen in certain levels or degrees for everybody. So how would you say that someone could prepare a spouse or family or friends for you to go into policing? Because as you said earlier, you will change. How would you prepare those people to support you? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you can. I think you can have the conversation when you're you're healthy about hey we need to set up some boundaries around you know my mental health and my relationship with you so that if you see something that's happening you need to tell me and I need right. to somehow be able to register that message in that moment. Because I think there were times where even my loved ones, like my family would say, hey, you, you've changed. But it didn't really, I didn't let it kind of soak in either. So it, for me, my story goes to a place where, and I think this is very common with PTSD, is you don't really wake up until you hit rock bottom, unfortunately. And the process is almost designed to go that way. I think in a way, like it just, it's kind of just how the journey goes. I don't know of a lot of people that were able to catch it in the moment and divert or stay healthy. Uh, and that's why my approach with PTSD and policing and first responder work is just assume that you're most likely going to get it because now at least you're not going to deny that you will get it and you will be open to at least talking about it and getting the help when you need to get the help. Another thing as well, as you said, you know, having those people that you trust and you've had those conversations with ahead of time to say, Hey, please be a, a checkpoint for me if, if something's not going right. Um, but for someone like me or anyone going into policing as well, I think it's also, and correct me if I'm wrong, really good to have people like you or, or Paulette, for example, who I talked about earlier, who was in the RCMP, just really good, supportive mentors who, who are already in the field or were in the field or friends and family and all of those levels of, of support, you know, having a good solid team at the beginning might also make some of the difference if you've had those conversations, like you said. And again, I very much agree. I think it's very important to build the foundation early on, you know, make sure you put in place, you know, pillar, the first pillar, your psychologist, your mental health support team, but also the right people that are going to be able to call you on your stuff. Uh, I had an interview with someone today who amazing individual, I won't name names because that's not my style. But in that interview, they actually had told me about a place where they thought their anxiety had come from. 
And it was very interesting because it was the first time I challenged, I think, this person, because I think for a long period of time, this person has come out and said, my anxiety is for this reason. And it's never been challenged, right? Because in life, a lot of times we don't challenge someone to necessarily really dive deep and grow. But as I listened to his story about where he thought his anxiety came from, I thought, well, there might be something more here, right? And as a good friend, you have to be able to get to a point where you can put yourself out into that vulnerable place and tell your friend, hey, I appreciate that you just opened up and we went deep. But I think there's also something fundamentally missing here because of X, Y, and Z. Can we go back to this and challenge ourselves in the moment here to talk about your anxiety, where it comes from, or your post-traumatic stress, whatever the case is? Do you think it could look like this? And then you just watch that register, right? And so it's really important to have those people in your life, the ones that are going to call a spade a spade, right? They might say something to you that's uncomfortable, but as long as it's coming from the right place, they're a good friend and they want the best from you. So you need those people in your life. I think you said something so key in its vulnerability and there might be people who are, you know, close to us, but there are certain people who are your people, your sounding board. They're your safe, emotionally safe people. And oftentimes we try to surround ourselves with yes people, people who are going to support us no matter what. But we need people, like you're saying, to call a spade a spade, know the intent and the place it's coming from is a place of love, but it's true and genuine. And, and that is so key, I think, what you said there how important that is for sure. So Nate, I know we've been talking about um, how to prepare a spouse early into policing and how your wife really saw you go from no PTSD, going through the PTSD, and now the post-traumatic growth. But I'm really curious, and if you're comfortable talking about it, because everyone has a different experience for sure, um, but are there certain things that are triggers for your PTSD? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, I think though my relationship with that word, uh, a few years ago when people would talk about triggers, trigger, I didn't know how to handle my triggers a few years ago. And that stems from some of the trauma, obviously, that I experienced as a police officer. So I'll give an example of one of the massive triggers that I went through for years. Uh, I think it would have been about 2010 when I was swarmed by a large group of people. And I went through this moment where I feared for my life and for my partner's life. And I mean, even now in the moment, my body is starting to shake because I'm starting to talk about it. It's still, it's still very much a trigger and the body's just kind of naturally remembering some of those hard emotions that happen, right? They get stored in the body. But for me, what came from that place is we made it out okay, but it wasn't a pretty site. And I, I talk about that on the podcast, how I got out, how I was able to, you know, use logic in that moment to figure out what use of force option I was going to use. Cause I never really got trained in depot, how to get out of a swarming incident. So I had to go through the use of force options that I had on me and what fits this moment uh, in a very short time frame. but I get out and then my partner gets out as well. And we're, we're for the most part, we're safe, uh, mentally wounded in that moment. Absolutely. And physically too, just for the trauma that was now stored within the body. But I didn't recognize it that from that moment on, 
I was going to have some massive issues and challenges from that. So what happened next was I stopped going to like large uh, areas where people would gather because that was a massive trigger for me. I couldn't do it. The body would freak out and say, this is an unsafe event. There's too many people because of the swarming incident. And my body would, I would just go through immense amounts of anxiety and I would just leave. I couldn't be there. So I would kind of start to pick and choose when I would do my grocery shopping. I'd have to be quieter or whatever the case was, right? So eventually over the years, this turns into uh, socially isolating at the same time and now completely not even leaving my house on days off. The only real time I would leave my house was to go to work. And so that was a massive trigger for me that over time had built up into some unhealthy behavioral problems. But now that I understand the PTSD, I'm able to challenge myself and go back out into, you know, the say Costco, for example, Costco has a lot of people and I can walk in there. And for the most part, I feel actually very safe. I might still be looking around a little bit, but you know, you can't really change too, too much, right? And you can't get to a place where, you know, I was maybe as a civilian beforehand where I could just walk through uh, life and be naive to the dangers that it may exist around you. Um, so I think right now I hold a very healthy balance with my triggers in the fact that I can challenge myself now with triggers, not avoid them anymore, but walk through them and do them and make sure I'm using the right tools or whatever it is I need so that I can lead a healthy life. Right. I know earlier we, we also spoke about having those people who are very close to us, who are our sounding boards. And I imagine your wife and your friends and your family seeing you go through that, that they would have noticed a change in you. So did, did people ever try to tell you like, Hey Nate, you're something's something's different. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think to what had happened in my journey with PTSD is I had probably pushed people that were really close to me far enough away that they couldn't really see where I was. And I don't know if I did that to protect them or to protect myself or to hide the PTSD because you do hide that in the very beginning while you try to manage everything. But the one person I couldn't hide it from was my wife who was there every step of the way with me, right? She lived in my house, so I couldn't push her away. And she was the one that uh, she did see a lot of that and she did tell me a lot of those things. But there's, there, again, this is where some of the ego comes into play too, right? Or the PTSD or the denial. Uh, there was a lot of times where I would listen and I would also disagree, but now, now I've gotten really good at, okay, you have something to say, let's, let's hear it out and let's, let's celebrate what you're trying to do here. Cause it's, it's for the right reasons. Uh, and let's work on that. So yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that one person that was the closest to me that I couldn't push away was definitely the person that called me on a lot of that stuff, but I also didn't want to listen to at the same time. Right. Yeah. You have to be in a headspace to, to hear it, but when you're not in a good headspace, you're not going to want to hear it. So it's kind of a weird situation altogether seems. I, I was always curious and I really wanted to ask you this as well. And, and again, this is your, your trigger conversation. So be aware of that when I'm going to ask you this. But you talked about um, being swarmed 
that day. Do you have any idea what, like, why the group was so escalated that day? Like, what was going on? <laughs> There's a lot of things you will not understand in policing, and human behavior is one of them. Uh, I think a large portion of why that happened that night was drugs and alcohol. And people right. were not thinking clearly. So literally, I think it was on like a Friday night or a Saturday night. Uh, there was a lot of people that were out, they're drinking, they're partying, they're doing drugs. So they have kind of an altered state of reality. And uh, at the same time, there was a group of maybe three to four people that were running around the village with a large piece of wood, like a two by four with nails in it or something like that. And they were just randomly hitting people. Why? I have no idea. But they were. So now the crowd is being hit and, you know, possibly punctured by this nail or stabbed. Uh, and, you know, a it, it pandemonium just ensues from that place, right? A lot of people are getting upset. You know, people are trying to chase these men down and stop them or hurt them. Uh, and it just, it, it went from, you know, just a normal Friday, Saturday night where people are out partying to chaos and violence. It just seems, and again, maybe I've been shielded in my life. I'm sure I have, but it just seems nuts to me that when, like, when someone's drinking or something, their thought is, I'm going to attack a police officer today, like, you know, to just be the instinct for, for violence just seems, I just can't even fathom it, which is why I sound so confused over this because I just... I'm, I don't even know what they were thinking. Obviously, they weren't if they're on drugs, like you're saying. But yeah, I guess you're like you said, you're never going to ever fully understand certain situations because they just don't make sense. No, and that, I mean, that something I think I struggled with in the beginning too after being fought with as a police officer because I came from a, a conservative background where you don't fight or challenge the police. And then now as a young man, as a police officer wearing the uniform, I had men who were coming up to me drunk, you know, and they were wanting to fight and they did. They tried to fight me. And I never understood that either. I mean, I took it personally to a degree, but I also knew that they wouldn't have done this if I wasn't wearing the uniform. So I was also able to kind of detach from that and go, okay, this is more about the uniform and not necessarily me as an individual because I'm not an whatever. I'm a very nice person by when it boils down to it. But people don't see that. What people see is they see the uniform and they have this predisposed idea that, you know, police officers are bad, right? Because they might have a, a certain upbringing where they believe that. Um, but now you on the other end of that spectrum, you don't, you've had a very positive uh, interactions with police officers. You, you just, you don't see yourself ever needing to get violent towards one where some people have had really negative uh, interactions with police officers. So I get where people are coming from. It's not right to obviously do that to a police officer, but I get that, you know, it really has to do more with that person and what they're going through or what they have been through in their life. Uh, and less about you. And I mean, holding compassion for that space is incredibly difficult, but that's the way you have to look at it. It's just some people are not wired the way you or I are. I would never put my hands on a police officer, but many people would. And you have to ask them the reason, you know, why would you? And a lot of times there's a lot of pain and suffering behind that for them because yeah, wanting to harm someone is just not something you should do. Yeah, 
Right. And and you did come up with a good point as well as even just having that uniform on could be maybe triggering for, for someone. And we did speak about that, that earlier as well when we were talking about mental health professionals maybe going to calls. But I'm just thinking here as well, if – if you're in a police officer uniform, there's going to be people like you said who are just going to come at you no matter what just because of the uniform and say anything and everything or do what they can to just get under your skin. Like, do you ever remember even maybe a specific time when a civilian said something to you that just like really got under your skin? I don't, I don't, well, let me think about this for a second. It's tough because <laughs> there's a million examples, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, there, there literally is a million examples. Uh, I don't really recall the exact uh, words that may have been said for so many of those times. But, uh, and this is the fundamental part of being a police officer, is you have to understand that a lot of times those comments aren't directed at you individually. It's directed at the uniform right? And they're going through their own pain and suffering. Did I have people verbally lash out as well as physically lash out at me? Absolutely all the time. But you have to maintain that control in that in that role and not react. And I think for the most part, most police officers are really good at that. Right. Yeah, I, I wonder how some police officers just have so much patience and and just the videos I've seen of depot just it's it's a safe environment of course but in the moment you don't feel like that when they're screaming at you but I guess that's preparing you <laughs> preparing you for the the real world and yeah like oh that's just nuts to me but uh you know I, I guess it's kind of a sensitive topic as well or buzzword or something but um I have heard from multiple women who are in the RCMP um, about their experience in a male-dominated profession and um, just like their experience as a police officer. There's definitely some um, like systemic ideas that women shouldn't be police officers. And I assume that that transfers as well. Like when you're working with civilians, people will say things. So do you ever remember... Um, like moments where women were treated differently in the role or anything even on that topic about women in policing? You know, a very interesting question as well. I think when I was getting into the Mounties, that was much more of an issue. Um, I think the RCMP has, is much better now at being inclusive to both genders. Did I see moments though where certain individuals didn't get positions because... Uh, maybe of shortcomings that were unrelated to gender, but could have been perceived as gender reasons why they didn't get that position. Absolutely. I saw that many times over. Um, now that's not necessarily unhealthy, but it can be taken quite personally depending on how that person is doing in their own journey. Uh, now, I still believe, though, that the RCMP is probably made up of about 75% men, 25% females. They're trying to get that number up to 50%, uh, and they now have leadership that is very 
uh, female focused, which I do actually support because that needs to happen. Right. And it's not so much an issue of, Hey, let's, let's turn the tables quickly and just get women, any women in there. I think we still need to vet the candidate right on their merit. And I think they've hopefully done a good job of that. I'll never know that, but there are a lot of females now that are in those positions. And I think the way we're approaching that is amazing. I think that needs to happen. Um, But will I say that that does not happen at the same time? It probably still does happen to this day. Absolutely. There probably still are some very real gender issues there. Uh, and I think we probably still need to work on that a little bit. I just don't know where they would exist or what they would look like. But saying that they don't happen, uh, I think would probably be false. But saying the RCMP or at least painting a picture of how I see it right now and what the RCMP is doing is also really important. So I applaud them. But again, I also hold space for, you know, there's probably some room for growth uh, in some of those areas. Absolutely. For sure. And and I feel too, sometimes the equity conversation is a bit triggering for people as well. Um, because I've, I've even heard, uh, even though the intent was good, people have said, you know, oh, you're a woman, you'll get in no problem. And it just, it totally, it really just diminishes like how hard I personally have, have worked. And like, I have a master's degree, for example, like I've, I've worked very, very hard and it is so that is definitely one of the triggers, for example, I have to watch out for and work on because as a woman, you do experience things differently than, than others. And, um, that could be said for tons of different groups, but I, so I do actually, I'll put a, can I put a question back on you? Sure. So take the pair, for example, like you're getting ready to run the Actually, I don't even know if you have to run the pair anymore, but the pair has been uh, kind of the gold benchmark of getting into policing. So you take, for example, the pair where you have to, you know, push and pull and use a certain amount of body weight and run this course in a certain amount of time. Uh, for the most part, males have a much easier time. They traditionally are taller. They have longer legs. Uh, they have an easier time moving the weight around because of their physical abilities. Is it different for women? I'm trying to remember right now. Actually, uh, for the pair, no, it's the same for everybody. There's my question right there. That's your, that's your entrance exam. So you're being expected to do the exact same thing as a man. Is that fair? And how do you approach that, that issue? Because what it's, is that pair exam is used to replicate something that would happen in the field, a short foot pursuit or something of that nature where you get into an altercation. So how, how do you deal with that? Because that you can't is, go out into the real world and say, okay, the man that you might get in a fight with in five years that weighs 250 pounds, we can't change him down to 150 because you're a female, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like very complex. How do you deal with that? You know, my partner and I have had these conversations all the time. And I, I know people will completely disagree with me, but I personally, this is my own opinion, I I do feel like men and women or whichever gender you want to be are built differently. It's just, it's just inherent. Like my, my partner who, um, can do like a lot of push-ups, as I mentioned earlier in our first episode, I have been working for weeks to be able to do a push-up. And he was saying he took so much advantage of the fact that that just was a natural ability. And I have to work that much harder just because women tend to have a, a stronger lower half. So their legs are really strong but their arms might not be. And so 
I have very much become comfortable with the fact that it's okay to have different benchmarks. And some people might not agree with that, but I think it's okay because I think that we're built differently. And it's funny though, that you're talking about the pair because I think it is a good baseline for sure. But the running that you have to do, they specifically say to run, uh, I think it's two, one and a half miles or something like that. Men have a nine minute and something benchmark and women have a 12 minute benchmark. So it's kind of like, where do you get that from? But I don't know. It, it, it's tough and it's, it makes you think about who makes, who makes those benchmarks. But like, I'm not going to be able to ever lift the same amount of weight that you could. Like ever. No, it's just physically not possible. <laughs> As I was asking the question and I was in the moment trying to figure out in my own head, like, how do you approach this so that it's fair? <clears throat> I actually do agree with you in that, you know, the standard should probably more model what the average is for each gender. Now you can't go out and change the field after the fact, but you, you can look at the things that you can change or manipulate to make sure people stay safe. And how would the RCMP do this? I mean, this has been something that we've been talking about for years, but two man cars, you put a female, right? She gets flagged as someone who, you know, maybe had issues with the pair or going through depot, but she's going to make a phenomenal police officer. You flag her as someone who would be better paired with someone who is a little bit more of like the tall athletic type, right? So you can kind of compensate your skills uh, and you two man uh, car them up and you know, you're never going to have any issues at all. Right. Yeah. Like for example, the other day when I was talking about the officers they saw at the hospital, there was one guy, he was massive, like a tree. He was so tall, big, muscular dude. Can you imagine him going to a call and then someone like me who might handle things differently? Like that's the perfect pair. I think we try to focus so much on like these black and white, like it has to be one or the other, but it can be both. You know, you can have a balance and and it can be both and it's okay. It's okay that there's differences and we I feel like we're so afraid to, you know, people say like, oh, I don't see this or I don't see that or all men and women are, you know, very equal, but, but we're not, we're different. And I think that that's okay to recognize that. I like, I, (laughs) I probably will never be able to do the amount of pushups that, that a lot of other people can do, but that's okay. Like you're saying, that doesn't mean I'd be a bad police officer just because I can't do like 50 pushups. I might be able to de-escalate a situation just by talking and not using physical force. It's not all about that. So yeah, you might save a life. You might save a life. You might get thrust into a situation down the road where you have saved a life and another officer would have ended that life or that person would have ended their lives because of the officer that showed up and it wasn't you. You have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're really making me think as well. And obviously the RCMP or any organization isn't going to change overnight, but it might even be worth the conversation of like, is it okay to not be this big, strong person? And maybe there's other strengths that we can look at too. Maybe we can fall short in certain aspects of the physical part, but be better in other aspects. Obviously you have to have a good baseline for sure. Yeah, exactly. And I think the RCMP is getting better at that. Like when I went into the Mounties, you still had to be like, I wasn't in this, this window, but just before me, I think you had to be over six feet tall. 
the RCMP had an image they were trying to, you know, definitely appeal to and recreate over and over and over again. So you had to have the guy who was, you know, the white male who was chiseled and, you know, just ripped over six feet tall. And he had that look, right? And there, there probably was a time in history where that worked for that period because of, you know, the issues that happened back then. There was a lot of fighting going on and a lot of uh, men that were drinking up in camps up north and they were tough men. So if you send a woman out to a small environment like that, like that's, you're sending someone to the slaughter more or less. So, but now things have changed, right? We're a little bit different in society and we have better things in place to protect people and the criminal code and you know rights and all of these different things and we're, we're growing so yeah I have to agree with you I think I think it's really healthy to approach that you know where your weaknesses may exist in some parts you have strengths that'll help someone else so I think right now the RCMP is much better at approaching this and removing kind of you know we're not taking a certain look anymore, but we're taking the quality of the person. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm just envisioning myself doing the pair, jumping over the five foot mat. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like five foot three. That's almost my entire height. So it's just kind of three inches, three inches, (laughs) you're three inches taller than it. Good luck. Yeah. Honestly, like that's a struggle for me where someone who's six foot, like they could just walk that. (laughs) So it's, it's, yeah, it's really, it's really funny or even a three foot jump like that's like a third of my body so well not exactly i'm not that great at math but that's okay that's okay <laughs> um okay actually you kind of barely touched on that point so i'm gonna go with it about the the drinking in in policing you mentioned how like the image before and you know up north camps and all these things it it is very true that there's an unspoken pressure about um or just a norm of drinking and being a first responder and, you know, going after work, like let's get a beer or something like that. Like, do you think that that's still very present or was that present when you were a police officer? It, it was present when I was a police officer, uh, very much so. I'd probably say more so in the role of a general duty officer in a smaller town uh, because you need to decompress and you just don't have the same outlets, especially when you're in more of a restric- restricted smaller community. Um, the My career, though, sorry, my career though, over time eventually moved into like a plainclothes unit. So I started to experience less trauma. And I actually noticed there that a lot less people went out afterwards for drinks or partying or whatever the case. Now, a lot of people around that time too were starting to have families. So their priorities were changing. Um, But that could be a generational thing or a phase of life issue. Absolutely. Do I think the RCMP is getting better though at getting away from alcohol or a substance? Like, I mean, even cannabis now is legal. So really, I mean, the RCMP members can't use it. I think you have to be cannabis free for 30 days before you can go back to work. Whereas municipal employees uh, or police officers, I don't, I think they're a little bit more lenient. They kind of treat it more like alcohol. Like you can maybe do it the night before, but not at work. Sort of don't quote me on that. Um, 
so yeah, I think, I think there's a new substance out there that could possibly be used as like almost a gateway in order to cover up the trauma and the pain that might come from a shift and people might be more prone to, Hey, let's go and try to deal with this, but not really deal with it in a healthy way. So I think it's something that, again, you just have to championship uh, yourself on your own individually to make sure you stay well. Um, But yeah, at the beginning parts of my career, I did see it, especially with the older generation. And then as time went on, I saw less and less and less of it. And I mean, even for myself, like I never was much of a, hey, let's go for a drink after work kind of guy. Uh, So I never really pushed that either on the the new people. I was actually, I tried to be more of the, hey, let's talk about, you know, the emotions at work or the mental health. Um, But at the same time, I wasn't great at dealing with my own. So classic, tried to save the world, but forgot about myself along the way. Classic. (laughs) Um, And I I know we've said this before, and you said everyone likely will get some aspect of PTSD it's impossible not to. You just see so much trauma. Um, but I'm just thinking too, like you you go see a bunch of traumatic events in the day and then you go for a drink to kind of help deal with that. And then eventually it becomes, oh, I have to go for a drink. And I, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you know this, that a lot of officers likely have some alcohol dependency issues because you start to, you know, have the bad day, need the drink. And you can't have one without the other. Absolutely. Very, very common. And something that I'm very open about was the fact too, that I too faced addiction in my journey. Uh, And I'm proud of the fact that I can now circle back with sobriety and talk about this topic, not only from seeing it, but having had gone through addiction and really understanding why addiction happens and why we choose to say have a drink or use a a substance in order to deal with some of the pain and suffering that we're going through. So I have immense amount of compassion for people that go through this because I understand why they do it. They've lost the tools and the ability to deal with their pain and suffering. And they're looking for a way to decrease some of the pain and suffering that they're going through. So I, again, this is my perception of it. You don't have to join me on that, but it is something that uh, unfortunately does become an issue. And I think police officers, first responders, they're all at a heightened risk of gaining these issues down the road with specifically mental health, PTSD, uh, but also falling into, say, addiction or self-medicating because you don't get to addiction without, you know, the first few stages of self-medicating, right? It might start off very kind of unbeknownst to you. You might start going for a few drinks with people periodically over the year and you're trying to deal with some hard things but not really sure how and then all of a sudden you start to use that on your own at home right Uh, so again it's a very slippery slope so I'll always say be very mindful of when you're drinking or using a substance if it is legal uh, and really ask yourself the questions as to why and check in with who's around you. And are you doing it socially or are you doing it alone? It's very complicated, but try to stay away from it as much as you can. Yeah, I'll always I... be supportive of that and always, always, always make sure that uh, you're doing the talking before going down that road. Right. And, and I would even argue not to say one's worse than the other, but I feel like alcohol is one of the most, and even cannabis now, is one of the most 
some of the most dangerous drugs that are out there because they're so socially acceptable that it's hard for people around you to see it being a problem. Because like you said, it starts out going after work and then it just changes into so many different things. So I do agree with you. You have to be really, really mindful. Like when I was a youth worker in Vancouver, there was, oh my gosh, there was a few months where I was drinking like every time I came home from work. And I was like, okay, like this has to stop because I was associating having a bad day with needing the glass of wine. So I'm very hyper-focused and mindful now and cautious with that because now when I have a bad day at work, like my spouse says, hey, you want to go for a drink? No, I don't think that's a good idea because I know I've had a bad day and I don't want that to snowball ever. So... Yeah, and good so. for you for recognizing too that with with those tough, challenging emotions that come from, say, a harder day or a bad day at work, uh, even though even though that might not be an issue to go for a drink later on and you thought you've worked through a lot of the emotions and you've talked about it, but setting up a boundary early on with your relationship with alcohol to, you know, give yourself that buffer so that you can really be confident that you're not drinking to numb your emotions or anything like that, I think is really critical. Uh, And I think holding that self-awareness is really key, really, really key to making sure you stay healthy because this, this is a 30, 40 year career if you want it to be. Right. I, I say me personally, I, I'm very, as I mentioned, like hyper-focused and critical in the sense of it for myself. So I don't even go there. Like if I know I've even had a mildly rough day, like I don't even open that door just because I, I, I just, yeah, (laughs) just not a good idea. And it can just keep going, 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 going. So, which as you know, you know, like you, Oh, you, sorry. Um, Cause you experienced like addiction yourself. So you know that like it started out very, very small of just, Oh, this might help me. And then it did. And then it became something you were dependent on later. So, so we talked about the slippery slope that can happen in addiction. And I know you, you talked about it a, a little bit in some of your podcasts, but I was wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit more to that and what that experience of that slope was for you. Absolutely. Addiction has, uh, once you go through it uh, and you realize how horrible of a experience it can be. And, uh, and for me, finding sobriety was uh, the path that I needed. And uh, here I am. Um, now, so my, my issues, I mean, to give full kind of disclosure into why addiction came creeping in for me, because a lot of people might sit here and judge uh, just from that that phrase alone, right, addiction, because it does kind of bring up some some questions and how and why, and I would never be addicted. And the first thing I would say about addiction is that addiction happens to people, and it happens to I think a lot of us uh, on various different scales. Like we might be addicted to the cell phone, or or uh, or sex or alcohol and drugs or food or you know so many different things in life you have to kind of figure out where you are in your life and what is your fallback to cope with you know stressful events or situations 
And unfortunately, a lot of times there is addiction there for, for all of us. Addiction is a very real human issue. So when people always say to me, oh, I'd never be addicted or I, I'm not or whatever, I'm always like, oh, okay, whatever, right? Like we've all kind of been there through life. It's just what does your addiction look like? For me, my addiction looks very much like uh, I wasn't doing well with my post-traumatic stress anymore. And I was going through some really hard times uh, internally with the RCMP with harassment and bullying. And uh, I felt like at one point in my career, and this is true, my sergeant had rushed me in the hallway and I thought he was going to attack me. So I went through a phase of no longer feeling safe at work. And uh, the panic attacks started uh, and some of the depression and the anxiety really came back from that moment. And the RCMP wasn't moving too fast to deal with the issue and create a work, a safe workplace for me. Uh, and I talk a little bit about this too in the podcast, so I won't go too deep into it. But from that place of not feeling safe at work um, internally now with my own people that I should be able to trust, the body started to really struggle in the panic attacks and the anxiety really continued to build. And it was in that moment where the antidepressant had stopped working and I didn't know where to turn next because the anxiety was crippling. Like it, I couldn't lead a normal, healthy life anymore. I wasn't sleeping anymore. I had insomnia. My mind was also churning 24-7. I had cyclical thought patterns, right? It would bounce between two or three different thoughts and it would just continuously loop. And I couldn't even break out of this, this thinking pattern at times. And it was incredibly frustrating because you, you lose the ability to have any control over your body whatsoever. And your body goes into this like different mode almost in a sense. And I wasn't well. So I know in that moment, I knew I needed something different. And that was right around the time too, that um, cannabis was becoming legal. And I was starting to hear about the benefits of cannabis for PTSD. So I actually had a conversation with a doctor and I was like, hey, is this a thing? Should we be considering this? This is where I'm at. And it was supported. So in that moment, I had uh, received you know, permission to do this and and consumed cannabis and what happened to me in that moment was that the anxiety went away completely went away and my mind slowed down to a normal pace again and i could sleep and i could enjoy life and i could do you know, so many of the things that I wasn't able to do because of this heightened state of arousal uh, in the, when the body wasn't well. But therein also lay the issue with the slippery slope now, right? Where now all of a sudden I'm looking at cannabis going, okay, how am I going to do this? Well, I'm going to do it before bed so I can get some sleep because I wasn't sleeping. And it helped, but at the same time, I didn't recognize in that moment either that much like alcohol, alcohol or any stimulant for that matter or depressant impacts the way your body, you know, navigates and works through sleep. You miss certain REM stages. It's in an altered state. So even though you think you're getting the sleep that you need, you're actually not. You're still not sleeping well, even though you might be laying down and closing your eyes for eight hours, 10 hours, whatever the case is. So you're still not dealing with the issue. And then that went on for, you know, a period of time to a point where you start to develop a resistance to the amount that you're using. So you start to use a little bit more. 
and it just continues to snowball out of control. And then eventually it got to a point where I knew that I no longer could function without it. And I knew that I was in a state of active addiction still was in denial at the same time, but knew that because of the place that I was in, I needed help. So I actually reached out to the Mounties and was like, Hey, and I wasn't in a state to acknowledge where I was fully. Uh, cause it was still very, a, a kind of a foggy, bizarre place to begin with. I said, I need help. I need to go to rehab to deal with the trauma that I've been through as a police officer, which was true, was still in a state of denial too, with where I was with uh, addiction, but I knew I needed rehab. So off I went and that's where I learned a lot about addiction and why we do the things we do in, uh, with PTSD. Uh, so I personally have immense amount of compassion for people that go through addiction. And I think I have a pretty good understanding now of why addiction happens and the amount of pain and suffering that you have to be going through in order to fall into possibly that area in life. And a lot of us, unfortunately, go through some very painful and traumatic things in life. So I, I understand addiction happens. Uh, but I also understand too that we need to do a better job of people that go through these, these hardships to support them. Right. I know outside of this conversation, when we first started talking on Instagram, I, I brought up melatonin. So I was wondering if you could speak to that because you said, for example, you're not going to do it. <laughs> yes. Melatonin working, working nights as a first responder. A lot of people rely on melatonin. They say melatonin is the cure. Here's the issue with melatonin. Melatonin actually is produced by the body uh, in very small amounts, but the body knows that when it is produced, it falls asleep and it does its thing. The unfortunate part with melatonin is you're getting different qualities of melatonin depending on, depending on the product you're buying from the store. So there's that issue. It might be good. It might not be good. Uh, and also melatonin, a lot of times is there's a very high dose of melatonin in that bottle or that pill, that single dose. So when you take it, yes, it works. It knocks you out for the most part and it brings you down so you can sleep, but it's not a normal healthy amount. So how then, which is another question I had, you mentioned shift work, like that's hard on the body for sure. Like you're not meant to sleep when it's light out. So how, how would you recommend someone handle shift work and what should they do to be able to sleep and all of those aspects? You're going to have to accept, I think, with shift work that you're never going to get the same sleep that you would with a normal uh, sleeping pattern. So you kind of just have to throw yourself to this thought that you have to try to do the best that you can for where you're at in your life, whether you're young and you can still sleep well. When I went through nights, I was still young and I could still sleep relatively well. I could lay down in my, even though it would be maybe eight in the morning, I would be able to sleep from eight in the morning till eight at night and then go into my night shift and, and still be okay and still be able to function for the whole shift. Very hard on the body though, when you have to switch back and forth and back and forth and your shifts are changing and you're taking on more shifts. So I think for nights, for me, I would definitely say you want to invest in making sure that the environment you're falling asleep in is really set up the way you need it. You need to remove the light. You need to get the heavy blackout blinds. You need to make sure the room can stay nice and cool, free of noise. 
that it's comfortable and you'll know whether or not the body's doing well in that environment by the length of time that you're allowing it to sleep and it stays asleep. Uh, so I would approach it that way as kind of setting up a good sleep, sleeping space. Uh, but I would also approach it too, in the sense that make sure before you lay down, like you're really checking in with yourself and you're trying to stay off the phone, right? Getting away from the stimulus before the sleep so that you're teaching the body that that last hour before you go to sleep, whether you're reading a book or you're having a bath or you're creating some kind of sleep hygiene type of routine, you're signaling to the body, okay, it's time or getting ready then you're teaching it that it can go into its normal cycle and it can build that pattern within, right? Of being okay to get to the REM stage four, the best phase of sleep or something like that. I feel like uh, all stages of sleep are the best stages. They, 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 really, they really are. <laughs> I, I'm not a sleep expert, but again, it just comes down to set the foundation of how you're training the body to enter into sleep. You st- and you still are going to have struggles with sleep because your shifts are going to be all over the place but just try to do the most that you can do uh, to set yourself up for success. Yeah, I'm definitely someone who needs sleep. So I really, I really appreciate all of that advice. And I completely agree with it as well. Like growing up, my mom always said like no TVs in the bedroom because you don't want to have a reason for your mind to be on. Like you said, if you have that hour, half an hour before bed, you're signaling to yourself like, okay, it's time to go into this routine. And then, Hopefully you can sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. I had a really random question as well. Um, Love random how o- questions. <laughs> how often did you have to pull out your gun? Uh, quite a few times. Uh, a lot of times I was pulling out my gun in Whistler for, because um, we do have the pistol. Uh, we also did at the time have access to a shotgun in the car. So a lot of times up there, we actually had a lot of issues with bears and cougars and wildlife. We were kind of conservation officers as well. So a lot of times I was actually pulling my gun for a animal call. Bears uh, often would break into homes. Same thing with raccoons. Bears and raccoons will break into your home and they'll steal your food from your kitchen, especially (laughs) out in Whistler. So people would call us at, you know, one, two in the morning, whatever the case was and say, hey, I think I have somebody in my house. We'd show up and there was a bear in there. So I had pulled my gun out many, many times. Um, A lot of times we would clear houses if an alarm was going off. So you would always have your gun out when you were going into a house to clear it, right? Because you don't want to uh, get caught with your pants down, so to speak, clearing a house without the gun out. And there's an intruder inside that house who's got a gun now pointed on you, right? You want to optimize your chances for survival. So there was a lot of times where we were doing that. Uh, There were some moments too in my career where I did have to pull my gun as well and get to a point where I almost pulled the trigger on uh, someone who was running around in the village, Uh, actually funny enough, right where uh, I had my swarming incident and he was looking to stab people with a knife. So we actually had to get to a point where we could corral him up against a brick wall away from people. So there was a foot chase involved the guns had to come out, mine had to come out, and we had to start ordering him to drop the knife. Uh, particularly challenging moment uh, because that male chose to claim that he couldn't speak English in that moment while he had his hand up and the knife in his hand, and I was probably six feet away from him. 
So one of the things that happens with the police officers, you learn very quickly, there's this threshold of, I think it's 21 feet. If someone is within 21 feet of you and has a knife, the chance that they have to get to you, to stab you, to do some serious damage, if your gun's in the holster, is very high. It happens very quickly. So I was in a position where my gun is out, yes, and my finger is on the trigger, and I actually had pulled my finger back far enough on that trigger to the point where I was just about to go off because I knew I had such a small window to deal with. If he had taken one step forward, I would have had to shoot him in the head, unfortunately. Wow. What, so what made him that, stop? I think he had a friend with him who started to talk to him in English just off to my side. So in that moment, I'm yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife, drop the knife. And he's saying, I don't speak English. And it was a very defiant, I don't speak English, kind of like mm. an F you. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that individual will ever realize just how close he was to death that day. But right. he did eventually listen to his friend and did drop the knife. We arrested him, charged him, sent him to court. I had to go testify uh, on the matter as well. And he actually, I think, was sent to jail. Yeah, like that's a lot of responsibility to have as a police officer as well that you you could end someone's life if if you needed to and i know during the process they ask all the time do you agree to use deadly force if needed da, 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 like all the time to make sure but it, it is a lot of power and i i just wonder how you made those decisions really i you know what personally speaking like now that i look back after have had gone through everything that I've gone through in my career, I personally don't even like the question when uh, a civilian gets asked, you know, are you prepared to use force, deadly force? No one is prepared to use deadly force. But what can happen is, I mean, maybe, maybe there's, maybe there is a right reason to ask that question to people because some might, some people might just say, no, I'm never going to do it. Okay, well, then you're not going to make a good fit as a police officer because you have to use force. It's just the way it goes. Um, but with that being said, I mean, how does someone who's a civilian answer that question? Honestly, we're all going to say yes. Because we want to get into policing, but nobody wants to have to use deadly force. But at the same time, when you go away to training, training is very good in that it prepares you for those situations so you can make a conscious thought with legal authority to use deadly force if you have to. I wonder, and, and you might have seen this in your career as well. Actually, here's a question for you. Did you ever work with anyone who had to use their gun on someone? Uh, that's a great question. Not directly. No, actually, I would say directly. Yeah, I have. Yeah, absolutely. And I do, I do a podcast. It's going to come out, I think in maybe, shoot, is it a month? His name is Mark Bouchard. Uh, and he's an RCM, an active RCMP member right now. I think he's up North somewhere. I can't remember exactly where. Um, 
but he uh, he has been in quite a few situations where he's had to. I don't think he's had to use his gun per se, but he's drawn it a lot, especially being on ERT or SWAT, however you want to call it. Up here we call it ERT, and he he broke it down really, really well and explained it really well because I didn't even think of this in the beginning, but he said, you know, Nate, he's like, there's, there's a cost to killing someone having to end their life. And we may articulate it in the moment as having to use force to, you know, save a life, save your own life as a police officer, keep people safe, whatever the reasoning is. But at the end of the day, you're taking someone else's life. And there is very much a cost to you, the person that pulls the trigger, psychologically speaking, of how is that going to impact you? And what he also said from that space was something I actually found fascinating. He said, there's also a cost to you for not pulling the trigger. Because in those moments, you're going to question yourself and you're going to say, okay, I had authority to do this. Why didn't I? And you're going to self-doubt. And you're going to say, am I still safe to be worked with? And it's very complicated fork in the road of you're going to most likely be impacted by both situations. Right. Like my thought process goes, if you ended up using your gun, would is there like an investigation that happens to make sure you use every single other piece of, yeah, like that's a, that's a huge responsibility to make that decision. I, I almost feel like I'd be afraid to use a gun because of all those things. Like, of course there's things you can always do differently. Absolutely. So like, I don't know. It begs a question. Yeah. Cause like, did we ever really, I don't know. And another thing as well, I was watching this show called Under Arrest. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it. Um, it's on Netflix, but I was watching it and it seemed like when they had their hands on the gun, it wasn't actually on the trigger. I could be wrong, but when you're going into like a building, you do you have your finger on the trigger? No, you don't. So there's no safety on our on our firearms, at least our pistol anyway. I don't know about the AR, the shotgun. I don't believe there is. Uh, if you trip and fall and your finger's on the trigger, somebody's getting hurt. So the safety actually is your trigger, your, your finger. Uh, and that's how we're trained. We're trained to always have our finger up on kind of the slide, just to the side of the trigger. And then when you get to a point where you're now committing to, okay, am I possibly pulling the trigger here? your finger is going to move down and, uh, and get ready to use lethal force. Uh, so, and that's where, like I paint this picture of my finger was on the trigger and it actually had the trigger pulled back to a point where it was just about to break, where it would set off the firing pin and send a bullet, uh, into that man's head. I was, I was aiming at his head, not the center of mass anymore, because that's not going to do anything. I need to stop the threat right now in this moment. And where are you going to shoot the body in order to accomplish that? You have to go for the head, unfortunately. So that's where I was aiming. So a very impactful moment for even me. And again, my body again in this moment, shaking. I've been there. And there's a cost to that, right? And I just remember thinking to myself, Matt, you've got no idea how close you are to life and death here. 
mm-hmm. in the position you're putting me in. I didn't want to be in that position at all, but I had to. Because if I wasn't, he would have stabbed somebody. And you said you had a partner there during that time? I did. Yeah, I was paired up with another member and we both ran down and we both actually reacted very much the same to the situation. Uh, both had our guns out right away. I don't, I never really actually talked to him about how this landed for him, but that's my portion of the story. Right. Like I, I wonder how close he was and why he didn't pull the trigger either. That's definitely something to think about. Well, and those are the thoughts you have after. Why didn't he pull the trigger? Or thank God he didn't pull the trigger, right? I mean, we would have been justified to pull the trigger in reality based on what was happening in that moment. But, I mean, was I overly optimistic in that moment and hopeful that something wouldn't go wrong? Probably. Uh, and those are some of the questions you live with. Thank God everything turned out and nobody got hurt. That's the most. That's the main thing, right? Right. And have have you ever gotten like physically hurt at work before? Yeah, I have. <laughs> I have. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had my, my uniform kind of ripped off of me in fights and I've been bitten in the leg and yeah, oh. I've had a whole bunch of bizarre things that have happened to me. I've never been stabbed. Uh, I know of a few cops that have, um, never been shot at luckily, uh, know of a few cops who have. How did, how did they handle that when you got bitten? Like, especially like the diseases that are out there, like how was that dealt with? Uh, I think I went to the hospital and I don't think he broke the skin Mm. or the pant legs. So we weren't actually worried about like an infectious disease. And I think, I think we made him get a blood test or something just to confirm that he was not unhealthy, I think. Right. Have you ever been like physically injured where you had to take time off work? Mm. No, I haven't. Not like ever like a sprained ankle or something or? No, not from work itself. Um, There probably was times I should have taken a few days off, you know, due to a foot chase or something where you tweak the back or whatever the case is, but I was young and, uh, not wanting to leave my brothers and sisters alone. Um, you know what I mean? So there was a lot of times I went to work when I probably shouldn't have went to work. I wasn't fully healthy, but and that's the problems too with policing in small communities. If you're not at work, you know, your brothers and sisters are alone, uh, possibly in dealing with things that are very complicated. So you kind of push your own boundaries a little bit there. I kind of see what you meant now earlier about maybe increasing funding towards policing as well, because maybe if there's an affordance to be able to have more police officers, there would like, it all just kind of snowballs. You wouldn't feel that pressure of, Oh, if I don't go into work, then the other person's going to suffer. Oh, absolutely. I can't remember how many colds I had while I was a police officer going in for a night shift and night nights were always so much worse, uh, with a cold, like even on a day shift, like colds weren't that bad, but on a night shift when the body was just begging and pleading for sleep. Uh, and I remember like, yeah, probably 10 times out of 10, I'd always go into work for that set regardless of how I felt. And I would suck it up and do my best because if I didn't, you know, there would have been staffing shortages and I would have felt bad for other people. So it's it's a tricky profession. I'll say that. Right. Well, as you know, I'm someone who could ask a million questions, but we're at a pretty long podcast right now. So I think it might be 
a good time to, you know, wrap it up if you're in agreement with that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Again, another great episode. Um, and again, this these episodes are great for the uh, the position that someone is going to be in possibly as someone thinking about a career of policing and uh, having the ability, Avery, for yourself to pick the minds of a police officer who's open to talking about some of the hard things that we go through, I think is really fundamental in painting a really good picture of what the workplace can look like for someone who's thinking about a career in policing. A lot of times with police officers, we shroud ourselves in secrecy. We don't open up. We don't talk about the real cost of service. And we don't paint a picture of what life can really look like, can really look like uh, for many of us. So I think it's really important to approach this topic with honesty and uh, authenticity and just be real. So I, I hope I'm doing a good job even for you and some people that'll tune into this. Uh, and I thank you for for the questions and just the connection. I always appreciate it. I, I really want to end this off on a note that you often end all your other podcasts off, which is, Nate, if you were to give your one piece of advice, what would it be? I would, you know, life, life is full of challenges, absolutely full of challenges. And you really have to pick the poison of how do you want your life to go? Wherever you go in life, you're not going to be able to safeguard yourself from the challenges that exist in life. So don't take these podcasts as uh, an opportunity to look at policing as a, a profession that you shouldn't get into because of the dangers or the risks or anything like that. I've said this time and time again, PTSD is very real for us. But it's not a reason why you shouldn't become a police officer. I think there are a lot of amazing men and women out there who would make phenomenal cops. We will always need cops. It's just how do we help them get into policing, stay healthy, stay mentally healthy as well as physically, and make sure that they can leave the career at the end when they choose to and go on and live a life and flourish from that space. So my my one thing that I will always tell people is chase your dream regardless of the cost that may come from it and always continue to push yourself forward and remember why you're chasing that dream and you'll turn out okay i love it i love it and i also want to take a moment to thank you for being so vulnerable um and and sharing your experiences and and some of them were very a lot of them were very very personal moments in your life and that took a lot of space and, and heart to be able to share those. And I also want to thank you for being my mentor now as well, someone that I can ask questions and you allowed me to pick your brain for four hours almost. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for your continued support with this project. And thank you for tuning in today.